Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Bring it on! Conversations about collaboration, episode three. Today, author Todd Henry joins me to talk about the intersection of motivation and collaboration. We discuss how the factors that motivate one person may work in precisely the opposite direction for another. Let's go. Todd, where does this podcast find you? I am uh, at home in Cincinnati, Ohio, where right now I am on pins and needles because we, have, we yet, do not yet know who the president of the United States is going to be. <laughs> we'll stay off that topic. We can uh, easily go for two hours on that one. But um, yeah, I, th- I think no matter what your political persuasion, I think everybody's on pins and needles right now. Because as we're recording this, like we're literally waiting for like probably today we're going to find out. So yeah, yeah. So um, I'd love to talk about collaboration in the context of your new book, because while reading it and taking the test on motivationcode.com, um, I was really struck by how the things that would motivate me as an achiever and someone who overcomes, right, would absolutely not motivate or arguably demotivate someone with a different personality type. Um, talk mm-hmm. about your in the context of collaboration. Yeah, so I think it's really important that, you know, we, we often think about skill set in terms of collaboration and we think about expectations and clarifying expectations and ensuring that we have shored up all of those, what we could call maybe the tactical, technical elements of collaboration, but we often overlook one of the most important parts of collaboration, which is understanding the mindset and the motivation of the people on your team. You know, we, we tend to think most people are generally motivated by the same things that motivate us. So, uh, you know, you mentioned a couple of the motivational themes that are in motivation code. Um, for example, mine, one of mine is meet the challenge. It's actually my top motivation. Uh, one of mine is one of my top motivations is overcome, you know, um, so if, if, for example, if you put a challenge in front of me, I'm going to go and try to make it happen regardless of, you know, what it takes. I'm going to walk through a brick wall to make it happen. Well, not everybody's motivated that way. Right. So I might be leading a charge. Other people are like, wait, well, hold on. Let's, let's get everything right first. Let's make sure we've asked the right questions first. Let's make sure, you know, I'm like, no, let's go do it. Come on, let's go. Um, and so it can create a bit of, uh, you know, tension on the team. If we're not aware that that doesn't mean those people are difficult. Sometimes we just say, I don't, I don't get along with that person. Right. Well, what we mean is we just see the world differently or we're motivated. We get our motivational energy in different ways. I mean, another one of my, uh, top motivations is something we call make an impact. Um, which means, you know, I, I need to see the tangible impact of my work, but not only that, I need to see the kind of impact I want to see from my work. And if I don't see it, then I'll keep going until I see that impact. The problem is sometimes that means I try to make impact in places where people aren't asking me to make impact. So I've been in meetings before where I've been, you know, maybe auditing the meeting, or I'm just kind of like a background player in the conversation. And within three minutes, I have a whiteboard marker in my hand and I'm mapping out the next five years of the business, right? On the whiteboard, nobody asked me to do that. Nobody wanted me to do that, but because that's my motivational tendency, that's where I you know, I tend to, to try to act. And so um, there's probably somebody sitting in the room who's thinking like, who is this jerk who just grabbed the marker and started telling us what to do? 
I didn't mean to, it's just kind of how I'm wired. So I think the more we understand how each of us is naturally motivated, like we're regular motivational energy, I think it changes how we approach collaboration as a whole. And by the way, there are people who are motivated by a theme that we call collaborate. These are people who love being on a team. They love interacting with other people. They love just being part of the group effort. That's kind of how they're wired. That's where they get their energy. Um, And there's some people who are motivated in other ways who are like, I couldn't care less about the team as long as we get to do the thing I want to do, or as long as we're, you know, and so we just have to recognize it doesn't make one person selfish and the other person generous. It just means we're, we're wired in different ways. Yeah, a couple things on that. Um, you mentioned how making an impact is so important for you that you've written all these books, yet you don't necessarily enjoy writing. That's very true. Yeah. So, um, you know, we often think when we think about motivation, we one of the myths of motivation I write about early in the book is that if I only had the perfect tasks, you know, if my job only was comprised of the perfect tasks, then I would just be motivated all day. I would just naturally want to do what I have to do. And the reality is all there, there's no such thing as a perfect job. And there's no such thing as a perfect set of tasks. We all have to do things we don't necessarily want to do in order to achieve outcomes that we love. And so you mentioned writing books. I don't like to write. I've, I've written and published five books with Penguin Random House in the last 10 years. That's, I mean, as you know, you've written books. That's a tremendous amount of work. Um, each book was about 70 to 80,000 words. So if you just multiply that out, that's about 400,000 words, which sounds a lot, right? Except as you and I both know, I've probably written between one and one and a half million words to get to those final words because you write things, you have to edit things. Like I had an editor cut an entire chapter out of my last book before Motivation Code, right? Just like, well, this chapter isn't working. I mean, it represented weeks of work on my part. And it's like, well, it's just, we're just going to cut it. It just doesn't, it's not making it, right? And I, and I agreed with the decision. My editor is amazing. I, you know, I love her. I love working with her. But it was like one of those things where you just realize like, I endure writing for the sake of the outcome I want, which is impact. And another one of my top motivations is influence behavior. I want to see like right now you're nodding your head. That's like narcotics to somebody uh, driven to influence behavior, right? Um, So, you know, I I want to influence behavior. I want to meet the challenge and I want to... um, to make an impact. Those are really my top three. Um, writing books is a great way to do that. But the task of writing itself, I don't, I don't enjoy, but I love the outcome that results from it. Now, another thing related to book writing as it relates to meet the challenge. Well, writing a 60,000 word manuscript or 70,000 word manuscript might sound challenging to the average person who's never written a book. But to me, just, you know, write 60,000 words, that doesn't feel terribly challenging to me. And so I'm often distracted by things that feel challenging in the moment like, um, you know, organizing my office or cranking through all my emails. So I have inbox zero, right. Or something like that feels challenging in the moment to me. And so I will naturally gravitate to those kind of tasks that feel challenging in the moment, even though what I really need to do is write. And so I've had to regiment my writing and say, you know what, I'm going to, when I'm working on a book project, I write 500 words before 9.30 AM every single, like Monday through Friday, 500 words before 9.30 AM. That's 2,500 words a week. That's a chapter every couple of weeks. That's a book every six months, right? If, if I stay on course, that is a challenge I can tackle. So I make the work I don't want to do. I naturally bring my motivation to the work instead of waiting for my work to motivate me. And it helps me make steady progress. And so that's what happens when we begin to understand our motivations. We can bring our motivation to our work instead of waiting for our work to motivate us. Hmm. I'm struck by your sports analogies and how you picked basketball, which is by definition, 
more of a collaborative endeavor, endeavor than say tennis or golf. But when I was filling out the test, I selected golf. And remember when I started, I would miss swing and miss the ball. And I couldn't come close to breaking a hundred, never mind a lower score, but I stuck with it. And eventually I was able to crack 90 a few times legitimately. And it took a lot of work to get there. But even in making that choice, I kind of had a sense of where you're going with the test because, you, and it wasn't, it's more quali- quantitative and qualitative data, right? But uh, it says something about me that I'd pick an individual sport versus a team sport, which absolutely has, I think, ramifications for both collaboration and for motivation. Right. And, and also, you know, being an individual performer on a team doesn't necessarily mean that the team is what motivates you or the team is what draws you. Because um, you know, I would say for me, the team aspect of basketball wasn't the thing that really drew me in. Um, it was the mission that we were on. It was the thing that we were trying to do. You know, I mentioned earlier that my number four motivation is overcome, right? So in order, it's, uh, it's uh, make an impact, meet the challenge, influence behavior and overcome. And overcome's a pretty close fourth. Um, you know, my basketball team, my sophomore year was 0-21. My basketball team, my junior year was 2-19. Um, to say that I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder going into my senior year would have been the understatement of the century. Um, you know, we were facing insurmountable odds, it seemed like, and we ended up like 19 and four and ranked in the state my senior year, you know, but for me, it wasn't so much about, oh, I just love being with these guys and playing basketball. For me, it was about, no, they're telling us we can't do it. Well, forget that. Like, we're going to do it. We're going to make it happen. We're going to work harder than we've ever worked. We're going to overcome the odds. We're going to, you know, we're David's taking on Goliath, right? Um, and, and not to mention the fact that, you know, I'd been sick and had to come back and all that stuff, you know, in the midst of all that. So, um, you know, again, when you look at the themes in your life and you look back at the achievements or those moments of gratification, it reveals a lot to you about what really matters to you, not what you think should matter, not what everybody else tells you should matter, but what actually matters to you often is brought into the light when you look at the patterns that are common among your moments of top achievement or those moments when you felt especially gratified in your life. Remember, I think it was page 64 of the book reading about overcoming and the things that annoy um, those who have that achievement theme and I think there's a bullet point of bureaucracy. And I can go back over my career and think the times in which people would present reasons to me that made no sense. It was, in a nutshell, we just don't want to do it, right? That's not how it works. I'm going, well, why not? And that would, right. with, uh, to your point, within seconds, irritate people, basically, who the hell is this guy who, you know, right out of grad school or first-time college professor going, what do you mean what we're doing is wrong? You know, you need to learn how we do things. And I'm like, no, no, you need to learn how I do things. And that, that made it difficult to collaborate. And I can remember sometimes irritating colleagues. And that was not my intention at all. But my motivation, and it's one of the things I wanted to discuss with you on, on the pod, my, my inherent motivations are not necessarily collaborative. And I, just, mm-hmm. I found it interesting because I don't think it comes from a bad place, right? I want to get something done. I want the process to work better. But those are opposite other people's motivations. Yeah, there are no good or bad motivations. And this is something that is a misunderstanding. You know, people think like, oh, well, there are some good, positive, beneficial motivations and there are some that are selfish and inward focused. No, I mean, just like there are no good or bad strengths, there are no good or bad. I mean, let me let me frame that up. Among the 27 motivational themes that we've defined in, in our research, there are no good or bad motivations. Now, yeah, there are people who are motivated by bad things. That's not what I mean, right? There are people who have nefarious motives. Yeah, of course. 
But what I'm talking about are these natural motivational drivers. Now, the way those things play out could be bad or could have bad or ill effect. But so, for example, one of the motivations that we discovered was something called be central, which means you want to be close to the action. You want to be in the room where it happens to put it in Hamilton uh, parlance, right? Um, You want to be close to where the decisions are being made. And some people think that's selfish. Well, you know, but it's not, is it right that I want to be close to the center of power that I want to be central, right? Or there's one that is uh, uh, evoke recognition, right? You want to be recognized for your work. That's what motivates you is when somebody calls you out in front of the team and says, Hey, Phil, you did a great job today. Good job with that, with that work. Well, is that selfish that I want to, that I want to evoke recognition? No. I mean, we, listen, how you're motivated is how you're motivated. Now, how, there are also what we call shadow sides to those motivations. So sometimes somebody driven to evoke recognition claims the spotlight, even though maybe they did less than their fair share of the work. But when it comes time to present it, suddenly they're the one presenting it. They're the one claiming all the credit for it. You know, that's a, how you manage your motivation is very different from that natural innate, innate motivation itself. But if I'm a manager and I know, and I, I don't know what your motivations are, Phil, but if I know that one of your main motivations is evoke recognition, I, you know, I shouldn't try to motivate you with a secret pay raise. Hey, great, great job last quarter. Here's a pay raise, right? I should be trying to motivate you by bringing you in front of the team, by calling you out in front of people, by publicly displaying to everybody else that I think you're doing a great job. You know, um, that's the way that I need to be motivating you versus somebody else who maybe is driven, let's say, to gain ownership. Maybe the way that I motivate them and reward them for great work is I give them another sales territory or I give them something else that will make them feel like, okay, now I've, I've, I've gained ownership of more things, right? More territory, more responsibility, more systems to, to own, you know, within the organization, so the, the better you understand what actually drives the people around you, the more effectively you can manage them, the more effectively you can, uh, at the end of the day, the more effectively you can get them to engage and, and be productive. And the same goes for us, right? The more we understand our motivations, the easier we can bring those motivations to our work. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's one of the lesser understood features of a tool like Slack or Zoom or Microsoft Teams. Um, those companies are working on technology that will let you gauge uh, softer or fuzzier things like employee sentiment. And when I hear people using them as just email 2.0, I think to myself, you're, you're really missing out because you could argue that management in general is challenging even in a normal world. Well, we're not in a normal world right now. So right. yes, you can pick up more of your body language on a video Zoom call versus on the phone, but it's still not the same, right? You can't read the room in the same way. If you've got 20 people in a meeting on gallery view, are you really picking up their motivations when they're 100 pixels tall and wide? So no, I mean, I, I did a, a presentation last week to an organization and like there were two people on my Zoom screen. It was a virtual presentation to a, to a team. There are two people who, because you, you can only see a limited number of people at a time, right? Um, even if you do gallery view, like you can still only see a limited number of people if you have like 100 people in the meeting. Um, and the handful of people that kept showing up on my screen, cause you can't reorder them were people who were, I think, checking their email or doing something in the midst of my presentation. Now there are other people because I would scroll through and I'd be like, Oh, okay. That's the person I want to pay attention to. Cause that person's actually laughing and engaging and they're, you know, I can tell they're really paying attention, but you know, for whatever reason, the handful of people that showed up on my screen were the people who were <laughs> clearly like disengaged and it's really hard, right? It's hard to present. Now, when I'm speaking in front of as you know, like speaking in front of a thousand or 2000 people in a room somewhere, 
you have their full attention. They're there, they're looking at you, they're laughing, they're engaging. You always have the one person with their arms crossed, you know, kind of staring at you, but but it's a different vibe. But now because we're on Zoom, like you said, it's so much harder to gauge where people really are. Are they really listening? Are they really in, engaging with the material and with the conversation? Or are they just kind of zoned out and nodding their head? Uh, it's so, so hard to gauge that right now. And for somebody who's driven to influence behavior, that is so difficult because I rely on those laughs. I rely on those like those moments of engagement to sustain me. And that's where I get my energy. So I will, as a shadow side, I'll work harder trying to get that one person who's not paying attention to pay attention to me. Hey, you in the blue shirt, right? Like I'll work harder trying to do that because my influence behavior motivation makes me want to have everybody engaged even if it's at the expense of everybody else in the room who's already engaged. I mean, that happens in a live auditorium. I have a person sitting in the front row with their arms crossed. Everybody else is laughing, engaging, having fun. But that one person with their arms crossed giving me a scowl, like all of a sudden it'll become all about that person. And that's just not, it's not healthy, right? To do that. Um, Because you forget what you're there to do. So It reminds me of that quote in the movie, Almost Famous. I don't know if you ever saw that one. I did. I don't don't know which quote you're referring to though. No, uh, Jason Lee plays the lead singer and goes, um, I look for the one person in the audience who's not getting off and make sure that that guy gets off. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So I know you're a fan of Zoom. Talk to me about how you use Evernote for collaboration as well. Yeah, so um, our team actually shares notes in Evernote. That's some, I've been using Evernote since, I think probably since it was in beta. Um, and just love it myself for, I mean, it's become a repository over the years of uh, resources and articles and everything else. And so, you know, typically when I'm in a meeting, I can say, I think I read a white paper about that in 2011 or maybe 2012. Let me go look and I can just do a quick search and find it and share it really easily right there on Evernote. Um, there are people on our team who just use Evernote to share meeting notes and documents and those kinds of things. And we, and some people use different tools. People use Google, you know, Google docs. Some people use, you know, they just, I don't know, carve it into a stone and, you know, ship it via UPS. But, um, you know, that's, what's beautiful about today is there's so many different tools that we have at our disposal, um, to be able to, um, to, to track and to, you know, keep track of our thoughts and our ideas. Um, I used for a long time, my first couple of books I wrote using a tool called DevonThink. Um, I didn't write on DevonThink, but man, um, if it had if it had a better mobile sync uh, feature, I think I probably would still be using it. But um, you know, I've just I've just been keeping this giant repository of stuff for I mean, well over a decade now. And so when I go to write a book, you know, I've got. Uh, you know, all of these things right there in as Steven Johnson would call it. It's not his idea, but, uh, you know, a commonplace book, right? This, this place where you can just keep potential ideas, um, uh, you know, dots to connect right there and just kind of go back over it every so often. And it's just funny how often something's, I'm like, oh, that actually applies to the thing I'm working on today. So it's pretty, pretty fun. Yeah, it's interesting talking to other authors because as you said, some people have one process. You try to write 500 words a day before, I think you said nine or 9.30 in the morning. Some people only write when they're inspired. Um, I tend to go dark for a while. And then when I have an idea for a book, I I can write 2,000, 3,000 words a day just because the floodgates are going. But it's because I'm this sponge and I'm doing podcasts or listening to podcasts, reading books, listening to uh, TED Talks, uh, articles and eventually I'll squeeze the sponge and a book comes out really quickly. But 
It's yeah. very interesting listening to different authors' processes. I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, what book are you currently reading? I am reading a book. I'm actually looking over at my stack right now. I'm reading a book called, I mean, two books at the same time. One called Why Information Grows, which is about why, specifically why our um, uh, planet is especially and uniquely equipped to be a repository of information in the universe, which is really interesting because uh, you have things happening on earth that don't happen anywhere else that we know of. And I'm sure could be happening elsewhere, but we just don't know of them. Um, and it's fascinating book. So why information grows fascinating book, bit of a technical read, but you know, fascinating book. And then um, the second book I'm reading is called citizen soldiers, which is by Stephen Ambrose it's about world war II, And uh, it's basically the story of the, people who landed on the beaches of Normandy and then made their way across Europe in World War II. And I'm learning things that um, I, I had no clue what, you know, what these people had to endure in order to, to do what they did. And um, it just makes me like, I don't know, like it just makes me uh, really proud to consider what some people did on behalf of other people a very long time ago. You know, like I think about, you know, 19... 41 and you know getting that letter or getting that notice that like hey we're going to take your 18 year old kid and send him over to England for training and then we're going to send him you know into France to try to free Europe from Nazi Germany you know and it's like all right well that that sucks but okay that's you know that's what we have to do that's the price of freedom kind of thing and now it's like if you tell somebody you can't shop at a store on a Sunday or you can't uh you have to wear a mask to go in their grocery store. It's like tyranny. Don't tread on me. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, do you know what we are capable of as a nation? Do you know what we've done? You know, I'm, I know we have a lot of international people listening, but I'm just, it just reading books like that just restores my faith in the thread of humanity, that there are people who are willing to step into the void and do things that are hard in order to protect um, those who are most vulnerable. And that to me is just a, it's, oh, it always restores my faith in humanity. So that's why I picked it up and started reading it in this political season, especially. I just want to remind myself um, that we are capable of hard things. So. Good stuff, Todd. I enjoyed it. Uh, you stay safe. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard and how can you not, please download, like, or subscribe. Merci, gracias, obrigado to the producer of this podcast, podcastedition.com. You guys rock. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash phil simon i've set up a number of different tiers including early access and podcast sponsorships thanks for listening to conversations about collaboration if you like what you heard and how can you not please download like and or subscribe see you next time